It's a mystery still looming over the Hampton Roads community. Now, prosecutors are disappointed with today's results. The district attorney wanted murder. He got manslaughter hey instead. Welcome to True Crime with Amanda, the podcast version of my YouTube channel. This case that we'll be covering, the Hi-Fi Murders, is going to be a two-parter probably. I'm not sure. We'll see how it goes recording. I may break it up for uploading purposes or even just recording purposes. We'll have to see how it goes. It's a pretty in-depth case. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and remind you that this is, like I said, a YouTube channel, a true crime channel, and some of the things we discuss will be upsetting, graphic, and things of those nature. So just a warning. So Ogden, Utah is the location of our case today. For those who have not heard of where Ogden is located, it's about 40 miles away from Salt Lake City, Utah. A lot of the information I got for this episode is from the book Victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder. I can't remember exactly where I heard about this case, but I know from the moment I heard about it, I was interested in finding out every detail. That's why I decided to read the book, as I mentioned earlier. It was April 22nd, 1974, when Orrin Walker and his wife Joyce were waiting for their oldest son, Stanley, or oftentimes called Stan, to get home from work at the Hi-Fi store. The hi-fi store that Stan worked at actually sold electronic stereo equipment. And remember, this took place in the 70s. So stereo equipment is a very big deal. Not like now where you'd have to put some work in to find a stereo-specific store. Stan was running a bit late returning home from work that evening. But Orrin and Joyce weren't too worried because that night, the owner, Brett Richardson, was out of town at a trade show in California. So that meant Stan would be in charge of the shop and everything that entailed closing up. He was working with a newer employee, Michelle Ansley, who just started about a week before this. It was a Monday evening, and that meant that the Hi-Fi store closed at 6 p.m. But when it got to about 7.30 or so, Orrin decided to give the Hi-Fi store a call. However, when no one answered, he began to worry that maybe something was wrong, possibly with the old Jeep that they just got for Stan. So Orrin thought it would be best to head over to the Hi-Fi store just to make sure Stan wasn't having any problems with it. Orrin pulled into the store parking lot around 8 p.m. and he saw Stan's Jeep, but didn't see Stan. Orrin walked around to the back door of the store where he found it unlocked and entered into the back of the Hi-Fi store looking for his son. But he walked right into the middle of an armed robbery. Orrin was met with two men when he entered the store. Two men with guns. The two men brought Orrin down to the basement where he saw three people tied up. It was his son, Stanley Walker, his son's 18-year-old co-worker, Michelle Ansley, and a 16-year-old boy named Corey Nesbitt that Orrin had known from around town. Orrin told both men to just take the equipment and just leave, that no one would report them to the police. However, this did not convince the men to let them go. They tied Orrin's wrist and ankles with stereo wire and left him laying on the ground with others. Then, just like that, the two robbers went back upstairs. They could hear the robbers feet shuffle back and forth through the store, eventually being able to tell the difference between the two men, the taller one's footsteps and the shorter one's footsteps. Now, while all this was happening at the Hi-Fi store, Carol Nesbitt was becoming more and more worried about her son, Courtney. She shared her concern with her husband, Byron, and her oldest son, Gary, who had just stopped in to visit his parents as he had some appointments in town. Earlier that day, Courtney had been at the airfield for his flying lesson when Gary called the airfield to speak with Courtney at Courtney's mother's request. Gary asked Courtney to stop into the photo print shop in town and grab some photos that were taken of a recent trip that his parents had out of the country. Courtney agreed to get the photos and be home to eat dinner with his mother, father, and possibly his brother. 
Courtney decided to park in the Hi-Fi store parking lot that day as the store was owned by his cousin, Brett Richardson, and the photo shop was just right down the street. By 6.30 p.m., Kara was getting even more and more anxious that something had happened to her son, so much so that she even got into a disagreement with her husband, Byron, and stormed out of the house. Byron thought that Kara was worrying a bit much. He figured that Courtney had soloed, which means just flying the plane alone without the instructor that day during his flight training, and was just excited catching up with people about it. Carol thought that this wasn't right because Courtney was expected to be at the local college because he had more training to do to obtain his pilot license. Like there's an academic portion of the pilot's license and then there's the actual flying hours, the solo flights and the flights I'm assuming you log with the instructor. Carol knew that he was supposed to be home for dinner and then head to the college for more training but she had not heard from him. This was not common at all for the 16 year old so Carol decided to go look for him. First she started at the local college hoping that he just went straight there but returned home when she had no luck finding him. She entered the house and stormed past her husband to call a few of Courtney's closest friends to see if they had seen him. After all the people Carol phoned said that they had not recently seen Courtney, Carol voiced her concern again to her husband about something bad happening to Courtney. She ended up getting into another disagreement with both her son, Gary, and her husband, so she left to continue to look for her 16-year-old son. This time, she drove to the Hi-Fi store where she was able to see Courtney's car parked in the parking lot and went in to see if her son was in the store and what possibly could be keeping him this long. Upon entering the Hi-Fi store, she was met with the barrel of a gun and a short black man asking what she was doing there. Carol responded that she was just looking for her son, Courtney. As Courtney heard his mother's voice, he said, God damn it. Finally, after a total of three people walked in on the robbery, they decided to lock the back door. Then the two men brought Miss Nesbitt down to the basement with the four others and tied her hands and ankles just as the others had been. Now, with five people tied up on the basement floor of the hi-fi shop, the two men came down the stairs together with one of them holding a brown paper bag that looked like it had a bottle in it and a cup. They poured the liquid that was in the bottle in the brown bag into a cup and it turned out to be a blue liquid causing Michelle to ask what it was. One of the men responded saying that it was a mix of vodka and a German drug and that the drug would just make them sleepy. At first, the two men attempted to get Orrin to administer to the, the blue liquid to each person, but when he refused, even with a gun to his head, he refused. So the two robbers were forced to do it. One of them walked over to each person, forcing them to drink the liquid from the cup, burning their mouths as soon as it touched their lips. Orrin remembers that as soon as he smelled the liquid, he knew it wasn't vodka. He saw each person cough instantly and vomit when they drank the liquid. So when it was his turn, he pretended to drink it, but he actually let it dribble out of his mouth slowly, but imitated how the others were reacting. Once the drink was given to each of the victims, the taller man went back upstairs. I'm not sure when they actually gave Michelle the drink. Some sources say that they gave all the victims at one time, and some sources say she didn't drink it right then. Either way, once the taller man went back up the stairs, the shorter man walked over to Carol Nesbitt and shot her in the back of the head at point blank range. After Carol, the man walked over to Courtney and shot him in the back of the head also. Orrin was next after Courtney, but somehow the gun went off and the bullet missed him. Next, the shooter moved on to shoot Stan in the head. I believe at this point, that's when the shorter man ran up the stairs, maybe to grab a different gun. 
Maybe he's going around out of bullets. All I know is at this point, it was reported that he ran back up the stairs. And when he came back down, he realized that Oren was still alive and he shot him in the head again. So at this point, four of the five people had been shot. Oren Walker, his son Stanley, Carol Nesbitt, and her son Courtney. Michelle was pleading for her life when the shorter man dragged her into another room in the basement. During this time, Oren was able to keep himself awake by doing things like wiggling his toes and trying to remember everything that was happened. He told himself that if he lived, he wanted to make sure he remembered every detail so he could tell the police. When the man forced Michelle back to where the others were laying, Oren could see that she was only wearing a white pair of socks. She was forced to lay down on the basement floor and just like the others was shot in the back of the head. Once the shorter man had shot Michelle, he leaned over and felt that Oren was still breathing. Oren, with his eyes closed, tried to act as if he was unaware of what was happening when he felt a wire slip around his neck. The man was attempting to strangle him. So I guess from what I found, Oren uses time to flex his neck's muscles so that way the wire wasn't super tight around his neck when the man let go. Oren was still pretending to be dead when he felt something near his ear. Just then, the shorter man slammed a ballpoint pen into his ear and then kicked it another two times. Oren said at this point he could feel the pen enter his throat. So back at the Walker family home, it was getting later and later and Joyce was getting sick of waiting. First her son Stan and now her husband hadn't returned home either. Sick of waiting, she decided to take her youngest son Lynn and head to the Hi-Fi store to see what the heck was going on. It was about 10 p.m. or so when she arrived and pulled into the Hi-Fi store parking lot. She noticed that the store had a few lights on, but it looked like the store was closed. She felt a sense of relief when she saw both Stanley and her husband's car in the parking lot. So Joyce and Lynn went to the back door, but after finding it locked, they ran the buzzer. But no one came to the door. This was confusing to the two since they saw the cars in the parking lot. Lynn pressed his ear against the door to see if he could hear anything happening inside. And he was able to hear the sound of someone breathing extremely hard, which caused him to yell to see if his dad was down there. After pressing his ear to the door again, he could hear the same deep, heavy breathing. But this time, he could hear his dad yelling to call an ambulance and the police. Since they didn't have cell phones, Joyce and Lynn had to drive to the nearest open store to call 911. Once they made the call to 911, the mother and son returned to the store to meet with the police. However, when they returned, they realized they had actually beat the police back to the hi-fi store, so Lynn decided to burst down the door to the store. Lynn and Joyce walked down the stairs, which they could hear the direction of Oren yelling coming from. On the way down, they first came across Corey Nesbert. That was the labored breathing that Lynn heard through the door. They spotted Oren and then ran over to him, quickly untying his hands and his ankles. They helped Oren back up the stairs to wait for police and medical assistance. Police arrived to an unknown trouble call at 2333 Washington Boulevard at roughly 10.30 p.m. The two officers were not prepared for what they were about to encounter. I think that the call was characterized as unknown trouble because when Lynn and Joyce called 911, they weren't really sure what was happening in the store. They just heard their dad yelling to call 911, so they reported that they didn't know what was going on. So I feel like that unknown trouble made sense. So police arrived and are met on the first floor by Oren, Joyce, and Lynn. Police asked what happened and Oren says they're downstairs. The officers noticed a zip tie around Oren's neck, burns on his face and arms, and a ballpoint pen was sticking out of his ear. When police make it down to the basement, they see a young boy with blonde hair. An older woman just passed him, who was laying on the ground with her eyes open. Laying next to the elderly woman was a young girl in just her socks, and then furthest away from police was a young man who was laying with his back to them but was not moving at all. As police walk around the room, they hear the young boy with blonde hair moan in pain, giving the officers the first sign of life. The older woman 
Carol, who is next to him, was alive, but barely. However, the young man, Stan, and the young woman, Michelle, both were pronounced dead on the scene. Oren was rushed to McKay D. Hospital to receive treatment for his injuries, but before he left, he was able to tell police that two black men, one tall and one short, were the ones that had robbed the store. He said that they looked like they were in their 20s with a clean-cut afro, and then police started to identify those left back at the store. 20-year-old Stanley Oren Walker was one of those that was pronounced dead when police arrived. He was born to his parents, Joyce and Oren Walker, on March 19, 1954, and was born and raised in Ogden. Also pronounced dead on the scene was Sherry Michelle Ansley, who went by Michelle. Born January 24, 1956, in Ogden, Utah, to Michelle and Laura Ansley. This was her first week working at the shop as a bookkeeper and a cashier, and she just actually recently got engaged. So how heartbreaking is that? From what I understood, too, Michelle was actually covering someone else's shift, so I can't imagine how that person feels that she covered the shift for knowing that this could have been them. 52-year-old Carol Nesbitt, the wife of Byron Nesbitt, who was a prominent OBGYN throughout the area, arrived alive at St. Benedict Hospital. However, she died shortly after arriving. Carol Nesbitt was born December 25, 1921 in Ogden, where she attended school and met her high school sweetheart, Byron. Byron and Carol will get married in 1942 and had four children together, Gary, Brett, Claire, and Courtney. After she passed, x-rays were completed and they were able to see that the bullet had entered her brain and actually split into 16-year-old Byron Courtney Nesbitt, who went by Courtney, arrived at St. Benedict's Hospital at the same time his mother did. When he arrived, doctors noted he had a gunshot wound to the right side of his head, red scars around his mouth, and his breathing was extremely deep. When I was reading the book, it followed the view of when Courtney was arriving to the hospital, and there was some discussion between the doctors if they should even try, like if he was even worth putting the time in to save, basically. It kind of made me sad that someone has to make the decision on a regular basis. But Anyways, when he first arrived at the hospital, they are unaware of who he was. They attempted to do some life-saving procedures, including relieving pressure from his brain. While Courtney was having trouble breathing, doctors could not find out what caused the burns around his mouth and caused the issues with his breathing. It was touch and go for Courtney for the first few days, really for the first few months. Orrin William Walker Jr. was born on September 17, 1931, also born and raised in Ogden. He was married to Joyce Walker and had two sons, Stanley and Lynn. He was loaded into the back of the ambulance and went to McKay D. Hospital where he would have surgery to remove the pen from his ear. Police were able to interview him and he was able to provide them with a good amount of information, including the descriptions of the suspects. Orrin was released that Sunday following the incident that occurred on Monday, so six days after he went in the hospital. He was released. The afternoon after the police came, so the it happened on the 22nd, so the 23rd, the police actually got a huge break in the case. Apparently, two younger boys were digging through the trash bins on Hill Air Force Base to try and find some bottles and cans to make extra money. While looking through the dumpsters, the boys pulled out some personal items, two purses, a wallet, credit cards, and a pen from the Hi-Fi store. A temporary driver's license issued belonging to Carol Nesbitt, 16 charge cards in the name of Byron Nesbitt, and two sets of key rings with 15 keys. Also found in the same dumpster, which was located right next to Barracks 351 on the base, was a single 38 caliber casing and 11 25 caliber casings. Now, one of the reasons I think that one of the perpetrators ran back upstairs because he was out of bullets is because there's actually two calibers that were found there. So I believe at one point he ran back upstairs to get a different gun and come back down and finish what he started. Oren has always said that it was just the one person shooting. So we'll have to go with that, I guess. When police arrived, there was already a 
crowd forming around the dumpsters and they believe that one or both of the murderers could have been in this crowd. While pulling the officers out, the officers exaggerated finding them to see if anyone in the crowd would act differently. It apparently worked because two men were pacing back and forth and talking pretty loudly while this was happening. The police were able to pick out Andrews and Pierre as two men acting differently in the crowd of onlookers. Around the same time, someone called in a tip indicating that the suspects were Dale Pierre and William Andrews, who were two men stationed at the Hill Air Force Base. This tipster said that William Andrews talked about committing the crime before it happened and even suggested that the two men planned on killing anyone that got in their way during the robbery. Police took note of this while they were looking for items from the dumpster that the crowd formed. Dale Pierre was seen in this crowd of people, as I mentioned earlier. Police now had two names to look into. They showed Orrin Walker a police lineup with the two men, and he was able to identify them both as the two men inside the Hi-Fi store. While speaking to other witnesses in the area of the Hi-Fi store, police were able to learn that a light blue van was seen dropping off two men up the street from the Hi-Fi store just before 6 p.m. Police decided to arrest Dale and William in connection with the Hi-Fi murders. All right, so at this point, we're going to go ahead and take a break just so I can make sure that this is edited. And I will go ahead and record part two right now. So it shouldn't be too long till the next one comes out. So make sure to look out for that part two. Please leave a nice rating and review as it would really help me and the podcast out. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter if you'd like to keep up with me. My name is at Amanda Warner YT. And if you prefer, you can find me on the YouTube True Crime with Amanda Warner is where you can find me. I try to keep it nice and simple and easy across all platforms. So until the next episode, keep yourself safe out there. The world can be a really ugly place.